0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Who Cares, What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. My name is Saab Johal, your host and producer of this podcast, and you can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or go to the WhoCaresWhatsthepoint.com website for more details about this show. You can find us on iTunes, the Google Play Store or Stitcher, so please subscribe and you can follow me at Saab on Twitter too. In this fifth episode of Season 1, I talk with Brian Sharpless of the American School of Professional Psychology at Argosy University in Washington DC in the United States. Brian has been interested in the phenomenon of sleep paralysis for some time. And we talk about the history and explanations of sleep paralysis, how common it is, and what can be done about it. I start with asking Brian how he became interested in this in the first place.
1: Yeah, it kind of happened by chance. I mean... Uh, being a skeptic, if you look at the history of skeptics, we oftentimes look uh, at a lot of interesting things. So when I was a little kid, I was really interested in um, some paranormal things. And as I grew up and went to university, um, I started studying more you know, hard edge science things. So I studied anxiety disorders, but I was always fascinated by um, trying to figure out why people believe strange things. So when I was on postdoc, I was, it was in Philadelphia and it was on a panic disorder study. And so at the time, a lot of people believed that sleep paralysis was, which is what we'll be talking about today, um, really might be, uh, might be much more common in people that have panic disorder and in people that are of African descent. So being in West Philadelphia, I had a, I had a, a lot of folks that had panic disorder and were also black. So I worked up a measure and started trying to see if You know how sleep paralysis manifested in people and how it also impacted on their lives, if at all. Um, And just to kind of, I guess, jump back a bit, um, sleep paralysis is thought to be one of the naturalistic explanations for some strange beliefs, like beliefs that you might be visited by a demon or that you might have seen a ghost or that you might have even been abducted by aliens in your bedroom. So I thought it was a nice way to verge my interest in psychology with some of my uh, Younger interests.
0: So, you explained and touched a little bit there about what sleep paralysis is sometimes um, uh, comes, which explanations come with sleep paralysis. So, maybe we can just um, um, describe what uh, people have told you their experience of sleep paralysis is like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, just uh, I guess. get down to a simple explanation. When you have sleep paralysis, you either are going to sleep or you're waking up and you find yourself unable to move. So it's not that it feels like it's hard to move, but your body is actually paralyzed. The only thing that you actually have some motor control over is your eyes and you have partial control over your respiration. Um, so it's a very scary experience if you're not expecting it. Um, You're lying there on your back and all of a sudden you wake up and you have conscious awareness and you can look around your room, but you can't move. So the interesting thing is that REM sleep activity is still going on, which explains the paralysis. But you also have dreams in about 80 to 90 percent of the cases. So you're having dreams while you're awake, which are essentially hallucinations because they're not there, but they look just as vivid as anything else that your listeners are looking at right now. And um, what's even more interesting is, whereas normal dreams are only scary around 30% of the time, sleep paralysis hallucinations are almost always scary. And they usually involve um, seeing scary things. So you might see human beings or non-human beings that are acting in threatening or malevolent ways. So back in the 80s, they started seeing sleep paralysis as potentially um, being a a scientific way of understanding some of these more supernatural claims. So as far as going back to your original question um, about what people have told me, I've had people um, tell me they saw ghosts. One of the most common experiences is of seeing shadow people, which I hadn't actually heard of until I started doing research into this. But so shadow people are thought to be these either time travelers or interdimensional beings that for whatever reason, they can't quite fully manifest where we are. So all we can see are these kind of matte black shadows, shadowy outlines. They might be wearing hats. They might have red eyes. And they're sometimes malevolent. They're sometimes neutral. They're sometimes they could, they could just have as many motivations as any other person you meet. What's really fascinating is Stephen Hawking actually believes that they might actually be real. Um, so when I was doing uh, my most recent study, I started asking people what they actually saw, and a good chunk of them actually saw these shadow people. And then you've got all the classic ones um, – one of the scariest descriptions I ever had was a young, young woman who was around 21 who was paralyzed, and she woke up to a little vampire girl with blood coming out of her mouth, and this, this vampire girl was grabbing on her leg and, and screaming at her. She was going to drag her to hell, so pretty scary stuff when you're waking up in the morning.
0: These yeah, it sounds very scary. Um, and I'm I'm wondering how many people listening to this are kind of nodding the, to themselves now, or or recognizing an experience that they've had. Um, I know personally, I think I've had one experience, maybe about four or five years ago. It was a fairly benign experience, but I did have the experience of my eyes waking up and me wanting to move my arm or my leg, and it not responding to my conscious call to to move my arm uh-huh. or leg, and then me lying there trying to figure out what was going on. And because I'm a clinical psychologist, I, I'd had some exposure to the idea of sleep paralysis. And after a while of feeling quite scared and alarmed by this, I and wondering whether I'd had a stroke. Um, right, right. I, I figured, oh, I think this is something else. And I'm just going to sit here and wait it out and see what happens next. And, and trying to keep, actually, I remember trying to keep my breathing under control and thinking, you really don't need to be having a panic attack right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. And see you did what everybody does, which you had a strange experience and you use the categories that you knew to explain it. So being a psychologist, you were looking for a psychological explanation, possibly a medical explanation. And when people have it, they use what's around them. So if they don't have a good scientific understanding of sleep, how complicated it is and how many things can go wrong, they could easily use other narratives. So if you're a very religious person, you might and you saw something scary you might believe that you're being attacked by a demon or um you know if you were in in uh, zanzibar you know you might believe that you were being attacked by this giant bat out of the jungle called the popobawa who lands on your chest and does bad things to you so i think whenever we have weird things we have to try to make sense of them we we can't not as people try to understand these things but some explanations can be helpful and some cannot be helpful
0: so you were talking a bit there about the sort of, you know, the worldview, the exposure of your previous experience and how it is that you explain the world and how that you use that to make sense of this experience. Culturally, yeah. Cult, yeah. So cu- culturally and, and I guess historically as well, what what do we know about how people had explained these sorts of experiences in antiquity, you know, really, really quite far in the past? Do we know whether this was experienced in the past through oral histories or other, otherwise?
1: Absolutely. Um, The earliest documented uh, case I could come come about that would meet the medical definition of sleep paralysis goes back to ancient Rome, but um, it's been described much earlier. But just given how they described it, we couldn't exactly say that it met full criteria. But um, in the historical part of a book I just did on sleep paralysis, I was able to identify 118 different terms ranging, going back from ancient Greece to the present and in dozens of countries for the experience. So the core parts of it seem to be fairly invariant. So the paralysis, oftentimes feeling a sense of pressure on your chest, difficulties breathing and fear and seeing scary things. That seems fairly universal. I haven't actually found a culture that doesn't have something like that in their records, but each culture sort of puts their own spin on it. So again, if we were in medieval Europe, we might see it as a visitation by an incubi or succubi. So, uh, a very libidinal sex crazed demon that's attacking you. Um, if you were in Japan, you would call this kanashibari, which means to be bound by strips of metal in China. They call it being oppressed by the ghost, and um, if you were in Turkey, you might call it uh, the Karabasan, which I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. I'm not fluent in Turkish. But it essentially means the dark presser. So you have all these different names. And, and the earliest one I could find was Pan ephialtes from ancient Greece. And this means pan that leaps upon you. Ephialtes also, I think, is synonymous with tidal wave in in Greece as well. So, yeah, it seems like a fairly universal human phenomenon that that because it's so provocative and so scary, um, it's attracted attention from the lay public and medical professionals. In European cultures, we actually used to call this the nightmare. Our current idea of a nightmare being just a scary dream is really a 20th century invention. Uh, Before, it had a much more specific meaning that was in line with sleep paralysis. So in a classic nightmare or noctmare, depending on your language, um, you would wake up, be unable to move, feel pressure on your chest, and feel a profound sense of fear. Um, Terror would be probably better. So historically, it seems to be very, very interesting, And and if you know what to look for, you can find lots of examples.
0: So there are some themes that sort of come out there, right? This, this wave of being taken over, this idea of feeling bound and trapped. And these all mm-hmm. seem to be quite common themes that go across cultures and, and across time. How, how common is it in, in modern day uh, when, when, when people talk about sleep paralysis? How many people at any one time in the population would be experiencing anything like this?
1: Yeah, um, I actually did a study on that where I aggregated um, data that I had with uh, 35 other studies, so I had a sample of around 36,000 people, and we had enough information to break it down by groups. So what we found was about 8% of the general population, 28% of college-age students um, and 32% of psychiatric patients reported experiencing sleep paralysis at least once in their lives. Um, so that's just a one-off experience. Um, of the people that have had it, depending on the study you look at, somewhere between 15 and 45% of those folks have it to such a degree that it actually causes a problem in their life, either because it happens so frequently that it disrupt- disrupts their sleep, Or it is so upsetting to them that they might alter their lifestyle or be so upset about it that it causes them problems. So it's much more common than people um, probably thought. Back in the 80s, there was a lot of speculation it might actually be purely um, an African-American variant of panic disorder. But um, the literature clearly indicates that it's not. And even though um, in certain studies it does seem to occur in non-white populations, the differences between it are really relatively minor.
0: That's I'm curious about that, particularly um, as you describe the difference between sort of the general population rate and then the college student rate. Is there mm-hmm. is there a particular life stage or age group that seem to report more um, issues and experiences of sleep paralysis?
1: Well, it typically seems to happen in adolescence is when you get your first episode. But why I think college students get it at such elevated rates and psychiatric patients is because... Um, you're really much more likely to have disrupted sleep. So if you're a college student, you're having classes um, at different times of day, so you might not be on a regular sleep cycle. If you're a psychiatric patient, you might be suffering from things like um, post-traumatic stress disorder or depression that are very well known to um, cause insomnia, to cause disrupted sleep, to cause unsatisfying sleep. And anything that disrupts your sleep is going to be a a proximal cause of sleep paralysis. Uh, PTSD seems to go along with it pretty well. Um, But if you do things like drink alcohol before bed, what happens is you might be able to get to sleep a little bit easier, but you're not getting the right kind of sleep. Alcohol actually um, suppresses REM sleep, so you get what's called REM rebound effects. So you're more likely to have intense dream activity at the end of the night, and thus you're more likely to make sleep paralysis happen. So if any of your listeners do suffer from sleep paralysis, very simple things you can do are just not drink before bed, not use caffeine before bed, and not sleep on your back. If you sleep on your back, that is the position you're most likely to experience these episodes.
0: So that's really interesting. These are sorts of preventative measures to, to reduce the risk of you getting this sleep paralysis episode in the first place.
1: Yep. Very simple things to do. And also to just kind of do what you did, sort of um, try not to get upset, try to realize, oh, I'm having sleep paralysis. I'm not actually, you know, that's not an extraterrestrial in my bedroom. I'm, I'm having a hallucination that's, that's fairly normative and um it'll pass and in probably between four and six minutes at the most
0: sure did you find any gender differences when you were looking at this um, data set did you see any differences between men and women
1: um women had it just a tiny bit more i think um i I have to double check the figures but i think it was uh three percent more common in in women but that's it was really negligible
0: Right. And for those people who, who are getting repeated episodes in their lives, does it um, does it continue for very long? Does it spontaneously remit? How, how does it work out?
1: It's quite an individual process. I mean, I, I worked with some people that had it almost every single night. Other people would have it sort of in chunks, where they'd go through long periods without getting episodes, and then all of a sudden, they'd get more. So the the course seems fairly variable,
0: right? And um, as you were talking, I sat I was sat there wondering. Okay, so what if this person is in a relationship, say for example, and they're sharing a bed with somebody else? Um, do they, how how does that work? Do they tend to disclose their experience to their partners, or do their partners become aware of it? And how does that impact upon um, you know their sleeping arrangements? Do we know anything about this?
1: Um, Not a lot. I mean, just I have some anecdotal cases of what people have told me. But I mean, in general... Your partner would have to be paying very close attention to you to even know you were having it. Otherwise, they'd think you're just sleeping. Um, Some people have their eyes open. Some people can't open their eyes, and their eyes are moving around with their eyelids shut. Um, There was a case of a, a, a physician in the early 1800s who actually would pay one of his servants to watch him as he was sleeping so that he could get out of it. Um, And so he would tell the servant what to look for and the signs of his eyes darting around and pressured breathing and things like that. Um, But the the idea of of feeling... Strange about this closing. This is a big one, and that's why I think shows like yours are important. Um, I can't tell you the number of people that I've uh, that I've um, studied that when I start asking them interview questions about sleep paralysis, they say to me, "Oh my God, you mean other people get this too?" So they think um, there's something either seriously wrong with them, or this might be the beginning stages of them going crazy. Because again, they're seeing they're seeing their room just as they normally would, but they're seeing things in there that obviously aren't there. I had one uh, woman who told me that she saw her room and there was there was a set of train tracks in them, and she saw a train going through her bedroom. <laughs> so obviously these things aren't um, based in reality. And there are al- also um, reports in the literature of people with sleep paralysis actually being misdiagnosed as having a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. And you can imagine how that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no. Please go ahead.
1: Um, and you can imagine how that could be possible because you have um, a strange experience. You see something that isn't there that you're very upset about, and you tell your doctor, who may or may not be familiar with the phenomenon of sleep paralysis, um, and you're in acute distress. And the doctor is clearly able to see that you experienced something that wasn't real. I mean, if you reported train tracks in your bedroom pretty un- improbable that you had that um, so there are cases of that of that happening
0: That's exactly where my mind was going in terms of the differential um, diagnosis of this issue as opposed to something else, such as a psychotic episode. I I was also wondering about, um, you've talked very much about visual phenomena, people seeing things or becoming aware of shadow people and this train tracks example. Mm -hmm. Can it show itself in other sensory ways, such as feeling or hearing?
1: All, all the senses seem to be up for grabs. And sometimes you get that kind of uncanny sense that you're being watched, kind of like if you're in a big city walking around late at night down a dark alley, you feel the sense that there are malevolent eyes on you. They call this in the literature the sensed presence. And what um, a researcher in Canada named Alan Chain found was there seems to be a sequence such that when you wake up and you have uh, sleep paralysis, The first thing you might notice is this sense presence. And what we think happens is your mind tries to organize this. So you start sensing something, and then you feel afraid, and your mind organizes it into a visual or auditory uh, modality so your brain's trying to make sense of it so now you're seeing something and then f- finally if you're unlucky enough to have it go this far you might actually start feeling it so uh, something might be on top of you pulling at your clothes physically or sexually assaulting you and there are, there's a strong, historical record going back even before we had any scientific understanding of sleep paralysis that there's such a strong sexual component to some of these hallucinations especially in women it seems to be much more common and you can see how this fits into um demonic attacks as well as alien abductions a classic alien abduction will involve you know probing of various orifices and uh uh, you know uh, a rape with instruments So it's a, it's very fascinating.
0: And you can imagine very, um, it's a very vulnerable position to be in when you do have this sort of conscious awareness or semi-conscious awareness, yet you feel paralyzed. You can just imagine how disturbing that can be for people.
1: Yeah. And you talk to people and they are adamant. It is not a dream. And that makes it confusing because they're trying to explain to people and they're like, oh, you just had a bad dream. They're like, no, I <laughs> I was awake. I was able to think. I was able to process. I was able to see my alarm clock right next to me. And all this stuff was going on. So that creates a lot of shame and a lot of strange feelings. And just finding out about it seems to engender relief in people. They feel, OK, well, this is a common event, I'm in fairly good company, um, and it's really not dangerous.
0: Did you come across any um, individual differences like personality that seemed to be correlated or associated with the um, frequency or commonality of sleep paralysis, Brian? (laughs)
1: Um, as far as personality differences, not that much. Um, some of the early literature even even tried to split people into groups and give them MMPIs and personality measures. They really didn't find anything of note. Um, it seems that there is an association with belief in the paranormal – Mm. Now, this gets tricky because we don't know, is it a cause or consequence of having sleep paralysis? So Mm. do you believe uh, in paranormal things and then you're more likely to have sleep paralysis or do you believe paranormal things because you've had sleep paralysis and have seen paranormal things? So we don't know about that. Um, Other things that seem to be associated with it are certain types of anxiety. So if you have high levels of anxiety sensitivity where you might be prone to misinterpret having an elevated heart rate for meaning you have a heart problem, that's been a replicated finding in the literature that if you have high levels of anxiety sensitivity, you're more likely to have sleep paralysis. If you have a history of trauma, whether it's full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder or not, you might be more likely to have it. Um, If you have a higher body mass index, you might be more likely to have it. And we think this might happen because if you have a lot of weight on your chest and you're sleeping on your back, you might be more likely to disrupt your sleep in the night and cause um, sleep paralysis. Um, Let's see. Those are some of the big ones um, Mm -hmm. that we've been able to identify so far.
0: Sure. So if people find themselves in the situation where they are having these sleep paralysis episodes or they know people who perhaps are, what what can be done about it? What are the effective treatments or interventions that, that seem to work in this situation?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the problems when you study weird disorders like I do, um, and I, I study a few of them, is that – there's a perception that they're very rare and unusual so they don't get a lot of attention so there's actually no well-validated treatment for this yet there are a number of promising things but there's not been one randomized controlled trial on sleep paralysis I think a lot of the A lot of folks still believe that it's fairly rare and that it doesn't really have clinical impacts. So we're starting to get a little bit of information about that, that, well, it's actually not that rare. And in about 15 to 45% of cases, it actually does. And gender clinical consequences. Um, So there are some pharmacological options that seem promising, and we're talking about very small numbers of folks, like just individual case studies or maybe three to five people. But um, anything that sort of suppresses REM sleep, so the major antidepressants, the tricyclic antidepressants, the SSRIs, they seem to be effective because they, they sort of make REM sleep not really happen as much. Um As far as simple things people can do, like we talked about, not sleeping on your bag, not drinking before bed, trying to reduce um, the general levels of stress in your life and trying to get on a regular sleep schedule are very useful. Um, I developed uh, the first psychosocial treatment for this uh, based on a cognitive behavioral model that I'm actually going to start piloting next month. Um, So if you have any listeners in the Washington, D.C. area that would – potentially want to get some free treatments. um they can contact me i'm very easy to find online but um so i I developed an approach to um help people develop better sleep hygiene and also to prevent episodes from happening and when they do have episodes to try and get them out of it more quickly and the way i sorry carry on Um, And the way I developed it, I was trying to think, well, how do I, you know, if when you're developing a treatment for the first time, it's very hard to know where to start. So I started asking people Um, in my sample of subjects who had it and I asked them okay well what do you do to prevent it and what do you do to try and disrupt it when it happens and they had a lot of good ideas and some of them when we were aggregating the data seemed to be more effective than others so I started incorporating those things into the treatment so one of the things that seemed to be useful was focusing on Moving one little part of the body, so maybe your finger or one of your toes or your tongue, but a lot of the folks that reported sleep paralysis said that trying to do that as opposed to trying to move your whole body was more effective. Um, Trying to calm down, trying to give yourself reassuring self-talk like it sounds like you might have done when you had your episode. Um, Trying to relax seems to make the episodes last um, shorter periods of time. So little things like that. And it's a very quick treatment. It t- takes between four or five sessions to to get through it.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking is that trying to establish that sense of agency, even if it's just, you know, like you say, moving a small part of your body rather than uh, the whole gross movement or that's that's calming self-talk and i'm thinking about the impact that may may have on our experience of time as well you know that experience of self-talk um helps time to pass in a very different way other than uh, when you may be just kind of watching this thing happen and it feels like it's taking forever
1: absolutely i agree with you 100 i honestly don't know whether trying to move your finger actually does get the get you out of the episode Uh, sooner or whether it just serves to distract you from the scary things you're seeing and calm you down and make it less aversive so i have no idea and from a clinical perspective i i don't care from a science perspective i care and that's a very interesting question but um yeah fascinating stuff
0: so where where next for you on this Who who should care about this research from your point of view and what's the point of finding out more about sleep paralysis where does this go
1: yeah well um even going back to the study I was talking about that demonstrated how common it was, I think that when you demonstrate a, that a phenomenon that was perceived to be rare and maybe limited to certain groups of individuals, um, I think it's important when you find out that it's actually quite universal. Um, and I think it has a lot of potential implications. I mean, if we talk clinically, there we found that there's uh, not insignificant portion of folks who are actually troubled by this, troubled to the point that my, they might not even feel comfortable disclosing it to their their you know medical or psychological caregiver. Um, so once there's awareness that that something's common, once there's awareness that it might actually be problematic, then you can start the hard work of trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we help these folks? And I think more generally, um, having providers know about it could help avoid misdiagnoses, like we talked about, either that they've got something more serious or, um Potentially ruling out narcolepsy. Um, We didn't talk about this yet, but sleep paralysis is very common in narcolepsy, which is much less common than having what's called isolated sleep paralysis, which means sleep paralysis that isn't occurring in the context of a medical condition. Um, And yeah, I think just being able to know there's a name for something can help normalize it and reduce a potentially frightening and shameful experience. And I think going going back to the first thing we talked about, I think um, getting the word out is good for, I think, science literacy, because this could potentially help people realize that they're not actually being visited by fairies or extraterrestrials or, or demons, but they're having kind of a blip in a very complicated sleep cycle. So those are the things I was thinking about, why we should care about isolated sleep paralysis. Probably to any of your listeners out there who have it, um, if it's really if it just happens once, I, I would like to think have you guys think about it as just something an interesting story to tell your partner about. Wake up and tell whoever's sleeping next to you <laughs> about it. Oh, I had this weird thing called sleep paralysis. But if you are one of the the groups that has it to the extent it's actually causing problems. Um, What you should do is try and find somebody, um, either a psychologist or a psychiatrist or neurologist who specializes in in sleep disorders, particularly parasomnias. So that's the class of sleep disorders that sleep paralysis is in. Um, And there are certainly some things that could potentially help you out.
0: And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this fifth show in this first season. You can find the abstract and links to the paper, but also a book and a discount voucher that Brian has offered on his book on sleep paralysis in the show notes to this podcast, or if you come to the website. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or me, your host and producer, Saab Johal at Saab. Hope you enjoyed listening to this week's show. Please send feedback through any channel, Facebook, Facebook even Twitter, uh, or through the email contact at who cares what's the So until next week. Who cares what's the point?